0: You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. I invite you to get your Bible out and go to the Gospel of Luke. In the second chapter, verses 8 through 11, we are working this Advent season uh, on a uh, series titled, uh, God Rest Ye, Mary. Uh, I've been singing the hymn at the end of service. We'll sing it again this week. It's a very pretty tune. It's minor key, but it's somehow hopeful. Like, it's interesting to take minor uh, chords and then have it be somehow Hauntingly uplifting. God rest ye, Mary, gentlemen. But why are we resting, Mary? Uh, Because we have tidings of true comfort and eternal joy in Jesus. And so, what we celebrate at Advent is the expectation, the longing. There is an announcement, a good news, a tiding of great joy for all people. And so, we celebrate that when we anticipate the, the full fruition of that good news. And so, one of the announcements, the tidings that we're going to um, look at this morning is this tiding from the angels or the angel and then angels to the shepherds uh, the night of Jesus' birth. So, this is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, is where we'll end this morning. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And in the same region, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So this morning we're going to be looking specifically at this glad tiding, this tiding of true comfort, eternal joy in Jesus from the angel to the shepherds who are out keeping watch or watching their flocks by night. The literal term there is they are, they are watching the watch. They are watching this. Uh, there's a certain watch of the night. It's okay, Joan. <laughs> it's not on live. Sorry. No captions this morning. Sorry. I'll talk this way and see if that helps. Uh, the, the shepherds are watching the watch. There is, there's this certain watch of the night that they are there guarding the sheep. As a shepherd, they're, they're a tough class of individual. And, they, and there is this, probably at this time, a, a large herd for sacrifices that are kept. And the shepherds have to keep them extra extra safely. They have to watch over them, especially at night. And so the shepherds are a staple, right, of the nativity scene. Every kid's program that goes through and has the kids walk up, they have shepherds at some point, right? We have Mary, we have Joseph, we got the baby Jesus, and then shepherds will always come forward because they have this glad tidings that is spoken to them from the angels and so they have they have this entrance into the nativity scene i mean you can imagine you can't imagine, I don't think. Try to imagine being these shepherds night after night out in the fields and then all of a sudden an angel appears out of the sky and announces to them this message and says, then go to Bethlehem, the city of David, and find this babe lying in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And then the heavens split open and the whole host of heaven sings uh, the praises, glory to God in the highest and so you don't have to wonder that the shepherds showed up at the nativity. I mean, you know, we talk about, you know, I, if I, had to, I would have to hear from God to do X, Y, and Z. You know, people use that phrase. I mean, I suppose if God showed up and said it to me, then maybe I would do X, Y, and Z. Well, the shepherds, they got a taste of that. It was like they actually, God did show up. The angels did show up. Then they heard an angel from heaven go to Bethlehem and see what's going on here. And so there's a lot we could go through in this announcement. In fact, next week, Pastor Jim is going to share with us and and he's going to give the sermon and he's going to launch out of this same text from a little different angle. But there's just a lot to cover in this passage this morning. But for our time this morning, I want to focus in right there at the end of verse 11. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And there's three titles given to Jesus in this announcement Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are three titles. Now, there's a lot of history to these titles, and we could do our our biblical uh, theology and go back and look at the tracing of this understanding of the term. It's Christos in the Greek where we get the name transliterated Christ. But it's the anointed one. There's this Messiah, right? And we've traced that some in our series so far of going all the way back to the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3.15, this coming seed of the woman who's going to crush, bruise the serpent in the head and be bruised in the heel. And we went and jumped last week into the Davidic covenant where there's this son coming who's going to sit on the throne of David and his kingdom is going to reign forever. There's this Messiah, this anointed one that's being watched for throughout the Old Testament. And the angel is saying that this Messiah, this holy one, God's anointed is is the one that this baby this, uh, they, these two ideas that is what this baby is this Messiah this longed for anointed one this child that is born is the fulfillment of that expectation he is the Christ and that becomes so wedded to his name that now I mean we commonly we refer to Jesus Christ as though it's like Darren Dolich I guess his last name Jesus Christ but it's not right you know this? It's his title. There is this Messiah, there's this messianic um, overarching reality to the life of Jesus. He is Christ, and he's also Christ the Lord. And that title, Lord, curios, is this it's the ruler. And Jesus as the Christ is the Lord over everything. And Everyone. We can to our catechism question. He's the ruler of everyone and everywhere. And as the Lord, as the, as the ruler over all things, Jesus, this baby born in this manger, wrapped in the swaddling claws in the city of David, is the Messiah. He is the Christos, and he is the Lord over all things. It's a title concerning Christ's authority. Now, this is Luke chapter 2, right? And we... The, the writers of the Gospels, they spend a lot of time trying to nail down and answer this question. Who is Jesus? In fact, you know, with lots of the, uh, the Gospel of Mark, you have the right at the centerpiece, the chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, they climb the Mount of Caesarea Philippi. And, you know, that famous question of, who do people say that I am? And some say this and some say that. And Jesus says, but who do you Say that I am. And you can kind of phrase the Gospels and arrange them around trying to understand this identity. Well, Luke, in his second writing, there, he writes also the, the book, the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. This is in Peter's first sermon. But Luke is recording this. He's heard it from Paul. He's heard it from the apostles. And he's writing down for Theophilus what has happened. This is his second book, of which Luke is the first. He says, quoting Peter in his sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And he marries those two terms, Lord Christ. He's the anointed one that the world has been longing for, the people of God have been looking for, and he is the Lord, he is the ruler over all things. It's a major plot point in the gospel narratives figuring out and trying to answer this question, who is this man? Right? I mean, you get to the end of all those of many of those miracles like my, one of my favorite ones is the calming of the seas of the storm, and they're out in the boat and they're terrified. And then Jesus calms the storm, and then they're really wigged out. And they're like, Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this Jesus? He is the Christ, He is the Lord over all things, He is the Savior. And there's something more I want to discuss in regards to this title specifically, Savior. And I want to consider us to consider this morning asking the question not only of what it means about Jesus that he's the savior, but what it means about us that Jesus is a savior. Not only does what does it mean about him, but what does it mean about us? In order to get the radical meaning of the Christological title, fancy word the, the word, the title for Jesus of Savior, in order to get the radical meaning of what it means that Jesus is Savior, we must confront the, the anthropological or the, the human reality that creates this need. To call Jesus Savior, that is to say, before we must consider what it means that Christ is the Savior, we must think about and understand the reality that there are a people who need saving. It doesn't make any sense to call Jesus a savior if there's nothing to be saved from. What's the point? He's a savior of what? I mean, the whole reason of calling him a savior who is Christ the Lord is because there are people who need saved. There's a rescue that must happen. If there's no one to rescue, there is no rescuer. You can drive around me. It's like, uh, well, I'm carrying mail some days. And uh, it happens at fire. Is October, is that fire prevention month? Is that right? Did I get that right? Does anyone know? I think so. Every October, the fire trucks will come out and they'll load all the elementary school kids on the top of the fire truck and blaze the sirens and drive around. And I'm like, where's the fire? There's firemen on there, but there's no rescuers on that At that point, there's no rescue going on. They're just driving the fire trucks around. Now, when you have a fire and they're going somewhere, there's rescuers on that truck then because there's some people to rescue. There's property, there are people to rescue. It's important that in this title of Christ as Savior, there is a reality we are first and foremost confronted with saving needs to happen. Rescue needs to happen, and if we fight the idea, the reality that we need saving and that we need rescued, then we are warring against the very reality of what it means that Jesus is a savior. This truth that Christ is the savior and that therefore we need a savior—it gets to the heart of the offense of Christianity. Christianity is offensive. Like there is a sense in which the gospel message, though it is a tiding of true comfort and eternal joy, it comes with a whole host of offenses. You don't have to work hard. That's why it's really very important as witnesses in a community and in the world to not add unnecessary offenses to the gospel. Because the gospel comes with plenty of its own offensiveness, because at its heart, gospel is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is a savior, biblical Christianity is offensive to proud humanity. It is offensive to prideful people. To hear that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, and we are in such a state that if a force outside of us doesn't rescue us, we are hopelessly lost that's that's humbling. That's offensive. How dare you say to me that there's anything wrong with me? You can hear, I mean, you could go to Facebook, you could go to any of the social media, you could talk to people and just listen to the cultural's noise, the culture's noise. How dare you say anything negative about me? How dare you come up with the idea that there's something wrong with me? It is offensive. I am perfect, wonderful, and beautiful just as I am, and how dare you say or think anything otherwise? The gospel comes with an offense because it says Jesus is a Savior, which means you need saving, you need rescued. We do not want to hear the humbling truth that we are so far beyond help that we don't need good advice. We don't need a pat on the back. We don't simply need a shoulder to cry on. We don't just need a, a warm blanket for a cold night, though we do, it is nice to have all those things. I think the gospel does bring those things. But those things all come underneath a far more desperate state of affairs. You need, we need saving. Often when I begin a funeral, I'll read from Isaiah chapter 25. In fact, I did just for Virginia's uh, last week, Isaiah chapter 25. And there's this beautiful section of scripture of this desire that the passage, in this passage, the people of God who are humbled, they're poor, they're weak, they're, they're being rescued by God. And God makes these promises you can see down. In, I mean, read the whole chapter. It's just beautiful. But you can see on down in verse, like starting in verse 6, on this mountain, he's going to subdue the noise of the foreigners. He's going to put the ruthless down. And on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. There's a really important phrase that we could talk a lot about. But he's going to make for all kinds of peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined and he will swallow up on this mountain. This is the, the beauty of Zion, the holy city, the heavenly kingdom. He'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that has spread, spread over all nations. Verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Not, not this is our God. I'm so glad you waited for him that, we, saved our, that we, we, we achieved him or we saved ourselves for him or that we somehow attained this good message, this good kingdom that he has for us. No, this is our God. We have waited for him that he... Might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation of us. Not of our salvation of ourselves, but of his salvation of us. In contrast to, to, to God's people who are rescued in this passage, we have those who have built walls for themselves. We have those who have built up kingdoms for their own protection. It goes on, talks about Moab, and it talks about these high fortifications in verse 12. The high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. There are those who have built walls for themselves, for their own protection, for their own kingdoms. They want things to go their way above all costs, at all all costs. And so... God at the end of this chapter they are they are thrown down they are cast to the ground they are put into the dust and in this text we see that it is only the humbled only the humbled those willing and humbled to call upon God as their savior trusting in him alone for their salvation that they are rescued the proud do not stand those who have built for themselves their own kingdom, they will not stand. It's why Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride comes before a fall. And Proverbs 3:34 says that God opposes the proud. And James quotes that as well. In James chapter 4, you can hear this, this same message: coming against pride and calling for humility, bowing yourself low before God and, and desiring needing his salvation. Above all else, James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, and this is the quote of Proverbs 3 from the Septuagint Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. There's a call to worship. (laughs) We don't use that one too often, do we? Could. You really could. Humble yourselves before God. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Confess. This is the state of myself apart from you. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will do the work of lifting you up. As you lay yourself low before him in desperation before him, he is the one who that will then lift you up. Part of the reason it seems to me that we do not agree that we need the desperate remedy of saving it's also because we have lowered expectations or desires. When it comes to the ability to humble yourself and to cry out to God for saving, part of the reason that we beyond the pride, another reason that we have that we have such a hard time crying out to God for salvation is that we lower we our sights are set far more worldly than what God is offering for us. For instance, if you desire to get across town, you don't necessarily call the sheriff every time to get the job done. You could just walk across town. You don't need great help to do a simple task of going to the grocery store. You just go yourself. You don't call 911 to go get a carton of eggs. You call your husband or your wife and you say, hey, we need eggs, and they go to the store. You just get in the car and go yourself and get it. You don't need great rescue. If you need your Christmas lights to come down, you don't necessarily call the fire department to get their, or call the REC to get their bucket truck out, unless you're one of those crazies that does have a clear up in your tree. Good luck to you. But you, you, you climb up and just get it down yourself. You don't need great saving. Part of the reason why humanity, Western American lives in particular, do not cry to God more for radical salvation is because we're pretty sure that all that we really care to achieve, we can pretty much get on our own. You know, I can live a decent life, have a decent job, get married, maybe have some kids or not, you know, go on some vacations, reach retirement age, coast it out. That's really kind of all I'm hoping for. And you know what? You don't need a lot of God to help you with that in most cases. There are very, very, very successful people who have no interest in Jesus Christ doing quite well on that standard of living. It's a spiritually dead combination of pride and confidence in ourselves and minimized or reduced expectation. I mean, we're not trying to beat death in this mindset, this worldly mindset. It isn't like we're trying to beat death or something. It isn't like we're trying to resurrect the dead. It isn't like we're trying to bring light where there's nothing but darkness with no resources and no way to spark light. We're not trying to achieve that. We're just trying to to get, just trying to have our worldly expectations met. It isn't like we're trying to get rid of the existence of all sorrow and every tear. But that's exactly the yearning that comes from Isaiah 25 that the Christian actually does have their sights set on, not just worldly pleasures or worldly achievements, but that the day is coming when we will see God face to face and we indeed will see the death of death. We will see all suffering and sorrow gone forever. That potentiality is out there that death itself will die, that your body, lowered into the grave, turning to dust, will one day be resurrected and live out its days in a new heavens and a new earth in the light of God's presence. If you want that to happen, you need help. <laughs> then you need rescue. Now, if you just want to live your happy American life and have your job, and maybe God providentially will keep you from getting cancer or any serious sickness, you might have a lot nice long 80, 90 years totally not needing Jesus at all. But if you want eternal life, if you want true joy, if you want one day every tear to be wiped off of your face, if you want the, add the, the diminishment of darkness in your heart and the presence of light and joy from a source outside of yourself, you need saving. You need someone from outside of yourself. You need a savior. We need a savior. A savior who is bringing into, bringing into life something that we cannot achieve Because only he can bring us out of what we're buried in. It isn't just that we need brought into life. We need brought out of death. We don't just need brought into light. We need to be brought out of darkness. We don't just need to be brought into joy. We need to be brought out of the sorrows of sin. We need a savior. We need saving. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Last passage, Titus chapter 3 verse 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. How does God bring this about? Page 1185 in your pew Bible, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our, can you say it with me yet? Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Not heirs according to the hope of the best we can imagine, the best we can hope for in this world. No. No. We become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How does God bring this about? By his own mercy, by his own grace. What is incredible about the saving work of Jesus Christ is you do not earn it. It is given freely by his mercy and by his grace. The self-confident work that's so often engaged in to, to get our measly achievements in this life, it does no good here. Work and work and work and work and work all that you try. The rewards that you're trying to achieve are far too great for our worldly, earthly efforts to achieve it. We're too riddled with sin. The prizes are too costly for us to work to achieve. But Jesus, the Savior, who is Lord and Christ, he has purchased them with his own blood. He's purchased these rewards. For what purpose? To give them. He's purchased and secured these rewards to give them to all who would turn from their sin and look to Jesus and trust in him. This is the good news of the gospel. This is just, though, some esoteric, like high-minded thinking. How does this help us today? Man, that's all this can. We want to get some practical. OK, Darren, great. Eternal life. One day tears will be gone. One day we'll have days of ceaseless praise. But how does this help me today? It seems like those who seek after the things of this life, who set their sights lower than the escape from darkness, lower than escape from sin and death, they get to receive the rewards of their pursuits in this life. And honestly, some do. Psalms is full of that. Proverbs is full of that. Look at the wicked, God, how they pursue their ends and they get to achieve them. Some do. Some get to enjoy a lot of wealth. Some get to enjoy a really rewarding retirement. Some get to move to incredible locations. Some get to uh, supposed trophy spouse, trophy family, and they take the most wonderful vacations. Some people seem to have the incredible family and the rewarding work that we think that we want. But there are problems with that. The first problem is that many people never achieve all the worldly dreams they think up. They've got sights set, and some do, and they're placard all over popular culture for us to look at and long after and idolize and and idolatrize over. But far more end up disappointed, depressed, and discouraged from all the brokenness of the fallen world. But secondly, Those who maybe still do achieve that with all their energy never really end up all that safe. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. They too, like all of us, are withering and fading away. There is something they can't achieve on their own. They still need a savior. And so when you have this big anchor, this promise, this eternal life that Christ is your savior, it frees you to enjoy the successes that do come your way in this life. It frees you to truly enjoy the momentary blessings for what they are. It empowers you to weather the trials that come your way because they can only steal the world away from you. And it liberates you to love and give radically because you're living for a different kingdom now, one that has been secured for you through your Savior, Jesus. You need a Savior I need a Savior. We all need a Savior. Jesus is the Savior. We are saved from the darkness we plunged ourselves into and are saved into his glorious light. Colossians 1, 12 says, We ought to be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We are saved from the destruction that we deserve and into the restoration that comes only from Jesus. We are saved from death itself and into eternal life. This is secured joy. And this is where God's people rest their lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that there is a Savior. Father, I pray for repentance. One of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit as he is working, going to and fro throughout the world, and as he is working in the hearts of every believer and upon the unbelievers, his job is to bring repentance, clarity of sight. And Father, I pray this morning that you would Give us eyes to see our pride. I pray, God, you'd give us eyes to see um, our treasuring of the things of this world over you. Father, the insistence of getting our own way, the insistence of respect, the insisting upon wanting things to be fair according to our own definitions the insistence that, God, you must build our kingdom. Father, convict us of pride this morning. We would see it for the idolatry that it is and that we would humble ourselves before you because truly born to us is a savior, meaning we need saving. And Father, may that implication hit every heart in this place this morning. As we turn from our sin, God, may we, at the same time as we confess our pride and our arrogance and our idolatry, may we confess it boldly because there is a Savior that no matter what path has led us into this room this morning, your grace abounds. And for every heart willing to turn from its sin, to turn from its rejection of you and to embrace you, forgiveness and your grace and mercy is right there to love them, to receive them, to forgive them and to welcome them into full fellowship. So God move in every heart as we go to communion, God. I pray that we do not partake of this in an unworthy manner, but considering seriously our sins and looking to nothing but Christ for our salvation. Pray these things in his name.